0: UFO Podcast. so it is an honor to welcome to the show today dr gary nolan how are you today good sir uh, great thank you um it's a nice sunny day here in california yeah, so th- thanks very much for, for doing this, Gary. It's, it's very good of you to spare some time to speak with me and, and the listeners, especially this co- close to Christmas. Very much appreciated. So do you get some uh, time off your packed schedule over the holiday season? Uh, a little bit. Uh, actually, I mean, unfortunately,
1: it's the time that no more email or less email is coming in, so I get to k- finish up with the several hundred emails I haven't answered in the last three months.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you must get quite a, a backlog with all the the people wanting to contact you.
1: Yeah. The, well, once the whole you know, UAP thing started up, I get so many emails that I wish I could answer them and I hope people understand I'm I'm not ignoring them. It's just I just don't have the time to answer six hundred emails a week. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I can only imagine what it must be like for you. I mean, I have a, you know, sort of a a reasonable following with the podcast and and my inbox is overflowing. So yours must be a whole nother level, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. But anyway, it's okay. It's,
0: the objective is to get information
1: out and to talk to people about uh, an area that a lot of people don't want others talking about.
0: Absolutely. So a a real... um, area of interest for me in this topic is the kind of um, ever-evolving, loosely affiliated group of kind of top scientists and intelligence officials, military personnel, um, who I've sometimes referred to with the somewhat simplified term of "one and knows, you know, folk who have um, seen enough to know that something is definitely going on, but haven't been able to get to the, the really good stuff held by the kind of in the nose so do you, do you kind of consider yourself to be a part of that kind of a group, and how does it feel to be involved? It must be pretty exciting right
1: well i mean i i I'm not on the inside, and anybody who thinks that I am or uh, et cetera is you know mistaking things that I say i mean, but I probably know an incremental amount more than others i mean uh I mean for instance, I knew a lot about the skinwalker Ranch long before it came to, you know, the UFO public view. Um, I was working with Colm and Kit and Hal and others, uh, you know, and I knew a lot about it. Um, some of it had been already written in Colm Kelleher's book, uh, but there was other things going on. I, I knew about Brandon when he acquired the ranch and things. Um, but you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's, uh, I think the only thing that might distinguish me as, insofar as uh, being a, on the peripheral and knowing a bit more is that I've tried to find a way to talk about it uh, in a purely scientific sense uh, and to set, uh, let's say, a standard or a boundary, set of boundary conditions uh, by which others can talk about it credibly as, as scientists. And I, I don't always even adhere to my own rules. So I'm, I'm not preaching as if I'm you know on a pulpit somewhere, but it's, it's really about how do we find ways to talk about this that are uh, enabling for lay people to talk to scientists so that they understand a little bit of the language of how a scientist needs to understand things. Now that's again, not to say that scientists are the be all and end all of how to interpret this, It's just that if you if you want scientists and the larger community who aren't scientists to look to scientists for validation uh, of things, then we have to play by those rules. And I've you know, I've been talking about this on a few podcasts and to friends and even at a dinner last night um, with some non aficionados is that, you know, look, there's experiences and experiencers who don't need anybody else to tell them what they saw. They might need somebody to help interpret what they saw. Uh, but and, and that is for at least the outside community, those experiences are anecdotes, right? But anecdotes, not in a negative sense, it's just a one-time story. And so what science always looks to do in anecdotes is to look take multiple anecdotes together find the common patterns and then turn them into something which is testable uh and so um that's really i, I kind of i'm trying to sit astride both of those worlds um but you know for me i have my own anecdotes that everybody's all heard about probably um but uh It's sort of like there's a a burning desire for me to understand what happened at those moments. Um, But then there's enough other instances where it's happened with other people that I would call that preliminary data. So how do I package that into something which I can talk in a credible way with other scientists about that I don't look, you know, that they can say, okay, well, you know, all right, that data is real. How do we ask questions about it? How do we test it? Uh, how can they walk away never having experienced what I experienced or others have experienced or hear the data and say, okay, well, let's spend time looking at it. You know, and, and you know, at, at, at this dinner I, I had the other night, it was just amongst friends. Uh, the, the others w- were uh, extremely surprised at how far the conversation has come from just even a few years ago. Uh, and how enabling it is these days to be able to talk about it and not be immediately dismissed as a loon um, I mean I mean that's just to me that's just an extraordinary testament to what people like Jacques Vallée, Hal and Eric and Colm did long before I came on the scene uh, to lay the scientific groundwork uh, so that people like me could come along and say hmm All right this is worth paying attention to so how do i how do i increase that circle uh and i know it's increasing because i get emails now from other scientists saying how can i help um and many of them had already had let's say um uh not a not experiences per se but they already had suspicions that there was something worth spending time on but they were afraid to start in on it because they were afraid what others might think about it. And so, you know, what that group and then Lou and, and Chris and, frankly, Tom DeLonge uh, did was open the conversation up in, in a much broader way where, you know, it ends up on the front page of all the major newspapers. That's fantastic. But nothing's solved yet. And it's not solved to my satisfaction
0: yeah that that's that's kind of what I was thinking you know i'm I'm certainly not suggesting that you hold the the keys to all the knowledge of the mysteries of the universe or anything like that, but I suppose like you know it must be quite you know exciting and and fascinating to move in the in the circles that you move in now you know knowing people that you know and and I suppose that's you know quite fulfilling is is to be able to actually get to the bottom of some of your own experiences and and sort of like help other people who may have had similar experiences to understand what's going on with all this kind of thing.
1: Well, I do remember I was around probably 2013 or 2014 when I looked around the room of individuals that I was working with, i had been invited to, you know, one of these so-called, not not insider, but let's call them peripheral insider meetings. And I'd already begun to read a lot of the books about the history of it. And I realized that sitting around the room was the history of the science of what was going on here. And I was just thinking to myself, how the hell did I end up here? You know, these guys know so much and I'm such a newbie. How do I even come close to understanding what they know? And, uh, and then they still know more about the history of things, but you know the reason that they brought me in was because of you know what I'd done with the Atacama, showing that it was human and being willing to you know be you know say what I thought it was and stand by it, um, but not dismissing the rest of the field because of it, which is often what I think a lot of these pseudo skeptics do. They'll find one instance that's so obviously disprovable or just silly in some way. And then they'll use that to say, everybody thinks that way. Well, no, they don't. And so, uh, you know, that's just, it's just forms of rhetoric and frankly, thought control, social control, and shame that try to keep people thinking a certain way for, you know, because it makes them feel comfortable that you will not think uncomfortable thoughts for them, (laughs) if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah definitely and your um your material uh, analysis is something that i find uh really interesting um you, you were sort of talking before about you know the the thing of trying to make some pretty you know complicated scientific processes more accessible and, and sort of create a bit of a framework as well i think i suppose is what you're you know trying to do with with some of that um is is part of, of what you're doing there a bit of an attempt to, you know, sort of make yourself indispensable to some of the more, you know, in the know types of people who, who, you know, allegedly are out there in these deeply buried programs to to get access to the to the really good stuff.
1: Well, I mean, it's a difficult. Actually, it's an interesting, difficult question that I'm going to avoid in certain ways, uh, to be honest. But um, at at one level, what I'm trying to do is uh, is show people that the approach to analyzing these kinds of materials at its baseline is actually very simple. Um, you know, X, Y, and Z needs to be done. And you can talk that at a layman's level and still convey very deep scientific meaning without, you know, treating people like children. Um, but the specifics, how each of those experiments are done. And the caveats and the things that can go wrong in how the instrumentation is run and how it's interpreted, that's complicated. And so, you know, I was on another podcast at some point where somebody was asking me about some of the stuff of Ross Caldharts that I'd uh, come uh, in possession of. And, um, you know, people said, oh, you, you sound defensive and angry. It's like, I hadn't studied it yet. I said, no, it's because this is expensive uh, to do. It takes a lot of people time to do. Uh, I have like, it feels sometimes five day jobs uh, that I'm doing. I have a lab and students that, you know, really my priority. Uh, And so I do this in my spare time. And so if you want me to do it quickly, then You know somebody's got to basically give and put down the money you know to bring together all of these these instruments i mean so the council bluffs experiment was one of a few that i did with jacques valet he had those materials they weren't mine they were his and he loaned them to me to do some of the analyses i mean i was constantly fending off jacques who wanted the paper written and the analysis done And, you know, so I I mean, I can, I can deal with all of Twitter. But believe me, it's very difficult to ignore Jacques Vallée. (laughs) When he was, you know, saying, let's finish this paper. Um, But, you know, I had to write the whole paper, literally almost every word in that paper was, was mine. And all the analyses were mine. But it took me like two or three years. So it made me realize again, how much time and effort when I have my postdocs who will write up a paper and I say, Oh, go do this. Oh, go do that. The amount of singular focus that's required on doing these analyses is to do it properly. You know, cause I've, I've seen some data from people who've done analyses of some of these things. And, you know, at one level, the, the, the data they've produced is fine, but it's, it's kind of data in isolation and it's, to reproduce it there's insufficient information in say the pdf that somebody puts online so without going through for instance a peer review process where it's kind of mandated that you put down what the materials methods instruments analysis techniques etc are and then you're forced to appropriately caveat what you say so as to not make conclusions that are not merited by the data I mean, that's a process and a schooling and a discipline that it took, frankly, me decades to learn. It's not something you just pick up in a book and and know how to do. Um, And so I think all I've ever asked for the community at large is to realize it's patience. And if you you want to get involved um, and you have the talent or even the raw talent, then go get the necessary training to contribute, not necessarily to me, but to, to others. And so in partial answer to your question about making myself, ir- you know, irresistible, or what was the word you used? In- to-
0: indispensable.
1: Indispensable. Um, it's, it's more about saying the way that you've been doing it is wrong. Meaning the people who are doing it, or if you have done it right, the data that you're letting out is shoddy and doesn't look like what any scientist would agree is appropriate. And maybe that's, let's say, not to be conspiratorial, purposeful, that they don't let out the, you know, the better analyses because it would reveal something they don't want to reveal. Um, I'm just making that up. I'm not saying that it is, and I'm not speaking from some hidden truth. Uh, but, um, at the very least, by sort of laying this out as a so-called respected or known scientist, I can lay out for other scientists a path that we can maybe do. I mean, you just can't send a piece of something here, there and everywhere and get a little bit of data from it and then put it on the internet. It just doesn't work that way. And so, you know, one of the things I wanna do, if if, um, if uh, Jacques agrees is take the, you know, the vast collection of things that he's got. And when we get the pipeline all set up, push them through the pipeline Um, and then publish one or two big papers that, again, don't make any conclusions, but do make uh, the data available for other people to attempt to interpret.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a very valuable work. I mean, the the paper that, that you and Jacques wrote was... I mean, I found it super interesting. I did a detailed breakdown of it on the podcast um, quite a few months ago now, when when it came out. Um, I say detailed, as detailed as I can. You know, I'm not mm. a scientist. I'm a professional, um, you know, musician who's basically trying to understand all oh, this as best I can. And, and with the podcast, I suppose I try and grapple with some of these complex, you know, concepts and break it down into layman's terms as as best as I can. To help myself and others sort of engage with with these ideas, and uh, that paper was was written in a way that I could understand it, and I tried to then sort of to break that down for for the listeners as well. So, it's brilliant to to see that kind of thing happening. And the materials you you analysed for that had some really unusual isotopic ratios. I think you you said that it it could be uh, made by humans about the question right well that was a
1: different so there's you're talking about two different metals i mean one were in the paper we published that was the material that dropped off of some object that multiple people saw the thing drop and then basically a pool of molten metal found in basically on the side of a a dike or a, a artificial lake um in council bluffs iowa and there the unusualness of what we had seen was not isotopic ratios, but that the metals of which the molten pool was made were incompletely mixed. Mm. They were in more scientific terms inhomogeneous. You know, basically somebody didn't put it in a big a big molten metal blender and mix them up to completion. They'd mix them up partially because when we looked in different places across the metal sample, there were slightly different ratios of the titanium or the aluminum or the uh, iron or silicon that was there. Well, I can't remember what all the elements were that were there, the major constituents. So very easy for a human to make, but not easy for a human to take 30 pounds of it in the molten state and drop it miles from any uh, Place that had sufficient energy to melt the metal at that level, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that was all part of the studies that others had done back in the 70s, basically trying to find out if it could have been hoaxed, uh, etc. Now, uh, the, the the altered ratios result that was from the Ubatuba, yeah, that's right. um, event, and um, so you know one of the samples that we looked at from Jacques had these altered ratios. The other sample from him had perfectly normal ratios. A couple of other studies have come out, not not peer reviewed, but you know, the data has been put out or I've seen it. And they found in those Ubatuba samples, absolutely normal ratios. So, you know, the thing to do is frankly, to go back and see if we can find the original piece that Jacques had uh, had because um, I took like such a tiny fragment of, he had basically like two tubes filled with um, thousands of shards, tiny shards of these things, you know, Moisture A and Moisture B, which I think in Spanish or Brazilian, or Portuguese means sample one and sample two, or sample A and sample B, I think. Um, and so one of those samples had a different ratio. So the objective is to go back and see and check, you know, all those other fragments and see, you know, do, do, we repeat that? But before I do that, you know, there's a lot of other important things to get ready to do it properly. And I don't want to just do another mass spec. I want to do detailed analyses at multiple other levels to, you know, really nail it down. But even should we find that there are altered ratios, um again it's no smoking gun for et it just says somebody did it um it's not natural uh so okay somebody did it it's expensive to do at least especially at that time 30 40 years ago um but it it sort of begs the second question is why would anybody do it Mm. right what was the purpose for doing it and throwing it strewing you know throwing it around a beach in brazil right for nobody to see and then just leaving it there and so you know i mean th- that that um fact Boyd, uh is the same whether or not you're talking about altered isotope ratios or the metal fragments themselves why would anybody bother whether it was altered isotope ratios or normal isotope ratios why would anybody do it why would anybody make that particular mixture of metals because it's not anything which is part of any normal industrial process so to me i don't know that that's a smoking gun but it's a huge question mark of okay well if we we get an exact detailed atomic structure of what this stuff looks like as part of a data dump And we put that on the internet and we say, hey, this is the result. I don't know what it is, but let's crowdsource our intelligence and somebody else come up with an idea. And that's, frankly, that's most of what science is. Science is is a moving target of conclusions that are only good as long as, until the next data comes along that says, oh, that's only part of the solution. Now with this new data, there's a new set of conclusions you can make. You know, people get so caught on trying to say that science said this, and that science has this conclusion. Well, it's always a moving target. Um, and the more flexible your mind is without being you know, too loose, uh, in many ways, the better scientist you are because you can more easily encompass alternative uh conclusions and viewpoints than even your own favorite conclusions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When when we're talking about characteristics of these materials what what sort of things would would be needed to be there to be able to say that this was you know, definitely not made on, on this planet. You know, is there a specific thing that you would be able to point to, to say that it was definitely not made by humans on on earth kind of thing? I mean, if I were to, you know, make
1: a pot, it would be some sort of structure, let's say a microelectronics structure and arrangement of atoms that um, is not at least in the literature or currently understood or how would you make that nobody knows how to make that you know and so the the part of the problem is today these days is that it's becoming easier and easier to make these extraordinary structures it was just an interesting paper that came out today that somebody had sent me uh about all of these you know microcrystalline structures that people are making partly by designing them on computer and then making them you know in the lab and showing that they have extraordinary electronic properties like different kinds of superconductivity or uh or other features so-called metamaterials, thing things like that so it's it's getting harder and harder to say that it's not something that could have been made by humans today which is why some of the historical artifacts and things that have been found that have a, um, a history and a chain of evidence that says it came from a time when we couldn't make it, then that makes it easier to say, well, this might be something extraordinary. I mean, obviously if we've got a, you know, a craft in a hangar somewhere levitating, I, I, I don't need to understand the atomic structure of it to say it, it's not ours. But if I want to understand how it's levitating, then I might need to get down to layers of understanding of uh, what it's made of and see if there's a what we call a structure function inference that can be made because of this structure. It has the following function and but structure function doesn't equal understanding. Understanding requires theory and understanding of mechanism and the math behind it and the physics and things that, you know. Again, I'm. It's well beyond my range of expertise, but I'm. You know, I, I think I'm able to bring those kinds of people to the table once we have the data.
0: Mm. Well, yeah, there's there's been a lot of talk recently of, of you know certain people having kind of direct knowledge of of where the most compelling things may be kept, you know, to include like intact or partially intact vehicles of of non-human origin, even like you yeah. say, levit- levitating somewhere in a hangar. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know, and. I completely understand that you won't be able to talk about specifics, even if you've you've heard about things. But are there any kind of indications in the circles that you move in, you know, as to what kind of things there actually are? Like, are we talking uh, interesting debris fragments, or clearly anomalous materials, or does it go all the way to sort of like you know, partial or even fully intact vehicles or bits of technology? I mean, there's nothing I can say that I'm not being evasive here. There's nothing I can say
1: that other people haven't already said publicly. There are people who claim that this stuff exists. I haven't seen it. I don't know the people who know where it is, uh, and um, but uh, you know there they, I'm just not going to say anymore. It's yeah, just okay. because anything I can say is going to be taken out of context, and I mean, I literally just got an email from a whole group of people who took something I said out of context. And I'm like, you know, dude. I, I, the, the, the quote from Walt Whitman applies. You know, because they were trying to parse something I said previously, as to against something was said, you know, at another time. Um, it's like, you know, what Walt what Whitman once said is, if I contradict myself, so be it. Uh, I contain multitudes. You know. I'm a yeah. different person than I was before with different thoughts and different maybe minor conclusions. I'm not a constant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know you, you definitely get quoted quite a lot on things. Um, obviously – Something that that yourself and other people have have talked about is this thing about whistleblowers. I suspect from what you were just saying, you may not want to go into any more details uh, about that. Uh, But obviously you have mentioned before that you'd spoken to people who were willing to come forward with details about some of these really deeply hidden programs and and that kind of thing. Are there any updates on any of that now that the NDAA language has all been finalized, etc.?
1: So I think we should wait until Biden signs it and um, see what uh, Congress wants to do about it. You know, no matter, w- no matter what I say, it'll be taken incorrectly. And so I'm just not going to, um, again, it's not from any deep knowledge. It's just uh, let's let the, you know, the, the play play out. You know, I mean, look at it, it's kind of like this. You know, if I'm starting a company, the last thing I'm going to do is talk to somebody out there who might be a competitor to give them uh, some clue as to what it is that I'm doing. I mean, I went through this as a scientist. You know, when you're competing with another group, um, the tiniest clue can point them at the right answer. And so better to just, you know, the whole loose lips sink ships Um, because, because the other thing is it sets people up for expectations Mm. and I'm not in control of anybody's agenda, anybody else's agenda. Um, I'm just as hopeful as the next person. And I've said this many times, I'd be just as happy to be proven that none of this is real. Uh, and that anything that i had personally experienced was just some hallucination if they can prove it absolutely and until then you know it's it's an interesting problem worth looking at yeah so how's that for like total evasion
0: <laughs> well no i i i totally understand and i suppose there's also an aspect of if there are people you know sort of thinking about coming forward you know it's not going to be immediate they're probably going to want to make sure that the protections are fully in place and you know set in stone before anything Mm -hmm. happens anyway and you're not going to want to you know give any indications of who that might be because that might put the actual process of them coming forward into jeopardy
1: right yeah I mean nobody wants to be talked about and you know it's the the same it's the same reason with some of the injury cases I just, you know, I just, others have now said, look, don't talk about this. Not because we don't want to talk about, but because some of the people who were injured are known and, you know, they, they don't want any more attention brought to them. So it's kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, so, you know
0: yeah fair fair enough i'm not going to prod and poke anymore in that area then we'll we'll move on (laughs) so Mm -hmm. one one thing uh, i i really appreciate about your approach is that you're willing to speculate about you know near enough anything but that's then followed up by like the proper scientific processes to determine whether or not the idea that was proposed through the speculation is actually valid i think whether it's skeptics or you know debunkers or sort of true believers on the other end of the the scale i think sometimes people can miss that step and jump straight from the speculation to sort of accepting whatever it was as real and building on it do you do you you get frustrated with leaps made by folks involved in the ufo field
1: yeah i mean i mean i went on to one of the ufo reddits recently because i was sort of like tired of twitter um for any of a number of reasons Uh, Because I just found some of the debate there was a little bit more um, considered. Uh, And people were spending more time. I mean, first of all, you had more space to talk and and type. Um, But second, but in a couple of those cases, people had made leaps based on things that I thought of as I was saying was speculation. And I just, you know, gently corrected them, saying, no, no, it's not that, it's this. And then those corrections were accepted you know, for that part of the internet, there's another part of the internet that goes off on all kinds of stuff that, you know, and, and you you can't help that. And so it's, it's, it's not, it's just that you don't want to feel like you're chasing yourself around the internet, trying to correct every misinterpretation. And sometimes it's hard when you see things in Twitter where people slam you. And you say, well, I didn't say that. And you're like, you half type out an answer. And you go, you know what, better to leave this alone. You know, you've got x number of people who follow you and you answer this one critic who's got 10 followers and you know you raise their stature it's like that's why i don't answer mick west anymore because many of the things he says i'm sorry mick we do have a background are just so non-scientifically you know conclusive as is like okay i'm not even going to bother correcting you anymore um because uh I just don't think you deserve the attention you're getting. Sorry, Mick. Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I think there's like um the way I see it there's a, a process a proper process to go through from speculation to proof and you know but often that starts with the spark of an idea through that speculation and um you know sp- speaking of like uh, anomalies and you know picking out an anomaly and then going through that process to figure out what actually is going on there. Um, there are some pretty compelling objects and structures all around the world which are pretty difficult to explain from the ancient past and i'm I'm, I'm not jump just to clarify i'm not jumping to the classic leap of okay aliens built the pyramids here but Mm -hmm. i think it's it's probably way more complicated than that but have you ever considered using your material analysis tools on some of the interesting objects from like ancient egypt for example
1: i mean I, i i don't i mean I don't need to, I've got plenty of stuff to do, but I mean, if you're talking about some of Graham Hancock's stuff, I mean, I find his ideas fascinating. I really do. I've I've no, I have no archeologic expertise, but he pieces together a very interesting story. I find more interesting the archeologist community's response to him. Um, And, and so negative uh, towards him, um, that I, to me, I sort of feel like it's a cult versus a heretic. He's definitely a heretic, but um, I don't always consider heretics to be wrong. So, you know, I think there's some explanations needed, that deeper explanations. I think I saw something on Twitter where somebody was, because Graham had wanted access to an American Indian burial mound site, or I don't know if he wanted access or the, the ability to film or something. And the letter from the whoever the governmental or governing authority said, well, it's a sacred site. That's fine. It is. Got to respect that. But we don't want you... Um, we don't want you coming up with ideas that are against what the, the sacred traditions are. And I found that unusual. You know, it's like, why are you not allowed to even speculate about something else? That's like, you know, you know, in, in the Vatican in the 1600s and you said something and you get, you know, now you're a heretic and you're, you know, you're tortured or put in jail or something. I don't, I don't quite understand that, but, you know, I I understand how people don't want their religious beliefs questioned, but, um, I never saw anything that Graham is doing that was anything more than speculation and trying to come up with a thread that explained all of these different observations. Um, And, you know, it's, it's interesting, Uh, but absent a time machine or somebody going in and doing, you know, better analyses on the cores from some of these diggings, you know, the kind of cores you can get,
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: and, and other archeologists being involved and not dismissing what he's saying, um, immediately before they even start, uh, then, um, you know, I, I think his speculation is just as good as some of the other things that people have claimed mainstream. Because it's a speculation. See, there's a, there's a difference between speculation where you have some credible path to understanding it versus things where somebody say, the moment they see something, oh, it's searchlights. And that's the end of it. But well, you, you can't say credibly, Oh, it's searchlights unless you provide a credible path for how those searchlights got there. Mm, You can't say it's space trash. Without saying how you know, what is your proof? Any proof that it might be space trash? You might just as well say it's flying elephants. Right? I mean, you have to have, uh, you know, science speculation isn't completely open-ended. You can't claim it's anything. There has to be some narrow set of criteria by which you can come to a particular conclusion or speculation, not not even a conclusion. Um, And so uh, that's where I have problems with some of the skeptics, that they just immediately, within 10 minutes of seeing something that comes online, they say, oh, it's it's a seagull. Without any you know, further analysis or having been proven that they're wrong, still go back to the, you know, having, you know, said, oh,
0: it's a seagull or something stupid like that. Yeah, so it's all about coming at things without that predetermined kind of decision already made before you start looking into things, isn't it? Right. And, um, And I think, you know, speculation is fine as long as there's a clear line between what is speculation and, and, you know, something that's been, you know, provable through the proper scientific process and whatnot. Here's an example. When Kit
1: and I were involved in the brain analyses, and Jacques was there at the time when we noticed this caudate putamen density thing, um, and we were trying to come up with ideas as to why it would be that this group of individuals – had this feature and then kit showed that or at least pointed out that well these are all high functioning people and then he went and did sort of an independent double blind analysis of the of the data to show that this was actually a rare thing but specifically enriched in let's say intelligent people you know we made the leap that this area of the brain was involved in intuition this is around 2014 2015. nobody knew anything about what the caudate putamen does now um and i actually w- had a meeting with somebody in the last week who's a specialist in brain studies and where are decisions made and all the kinds of things that can be done and guess what he what he's focused on the caudate I said, well, why are you focused on the caudate? He says, because everybody knows now that the caudate is involved in, you know, decision making and all of this, that and the other. And I thought to go look on Google and do it on the, not on Google, but on, um, you know, uh, PubMed, the, the, uh, the Library of Sciences. Um, and lo and behold, you know, the, the number of studies on the caudate and potamen has like accelerated like this and in its involvement. I mean, not because of me. You know, but it's kind of like ideas are in the air, and suddenly there's enough observations being made by many people that they all obviously come to the same conclusion, and now it's an absolute fact that the CAUD8 is involved in intuitive processes or whatever it is that we think that are intuitive processes. Now I've made the additional leap that I think that somehow this is involved. If if there were to be anomalous information collected from the environment that we don't understand how it's collected, it's going to be at least partly processed through that. And that people who have the right kinds of processing arrangements of the neuronal structures in their head would be better than others, just like some people are better at playing the piano or or music or singing. I mean, you never want me anywhere near a piano or near a, a mic you know, at a karaoke. I mean I'll shatter the windows. You know, some people are just more talented than others.
0: Yeah, me me too. I mean, if you're ever in the country, Gary, and you want to play the drums, I'm your man. But in terms <laughs> of sing in terms of singing or playing piano, uh, you better keep oh. me away from those things. Otherwise yeah, yeah, people will be running for the hills. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, do you think there's any with the um the the cordate thing and uh, that that higher density in in that region and whatnot do you think there's a a strong link there then between people who are actually UFO experiences and and have these anomalous experiences and is that something yeah. that you're continuing no I I, to I, look I, into? I do but I am I'm, I'm not sure that it's because they have
1: magic sight in fact I'm you know I, I wouldn't even come close to claiming that but I do think that it's connected to let's say a network of observation and realizing that what you're seeing or hearing or experiencing is not a normal part of the environment. You know, recognizing an anomaly and reacting to it and then maybe making some kinds of inferences about it is really almost at the heart of intelligence. It's, you know, knowing that you are separate from what you're observing and that what you're observing isn't normal for your environment and therefore might be interesting because frankly, it might be a threat or it might be an opportunity. And so, you know, being able to recognize anomalies as either of those is at the heart of Silicon Valley, right, right behind me. Uh, and, and basically saying, oh, if we, you know, oh, we can do this now, what an, what an amazing opportunity, let's do that. Because somebody saw the following anomaly, and the, the, the non standard trend. Um, and so, to me, that's just, at, at some level, just a simple uh, indicator of intelligence, uh, or processing. And some people are better at it than others. I mean, I know, mul- I know people who are multiple-time entrepreneurs. And I know other people who are super smart, even professors at Stanford, that I wouldn't let them anywhere near a company because they haven't got a clue of how they should be starting a company. And they have all the wrong assumptions. And, you know, they, have, they assume that because they're amazing at one area of science that, therefore, they're going to be an instant business person. Even I had to learn
0: yeah that's it but the, i think the the anomalies are where the the really interesting stuff is, isn't it you know and yeah. uh do, do you think there's potentially and again some of this is for the rest of this uh episode is going to be a little bit more on the speculative side so please nobody start oh. quoting gary as saying that he thinks this and this oh they still
1: will
0: <laughs> <laughs> Spe- <laughs> speculation zone um but do you think there could potentially be some kind of um link with that particular part of the brain as perhaps being able to you know, perceive things that are outside of, of typical human perception. And that could potentially be why people have, you know, a, a greater likelihood of, of having anomalous experiences with that uh, anomaly.
1: Well, um, I mean, yes, maybe. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I find the link of the, of the higher density curious. Um in that it's, it you know, at least in the, we, we haven't done, I mean, this is another example of, of why leaping to a conclusion from a biased subset of individuals is a mistake. You know, really what needs to be done is a comprehensive study, um, which is why, for instance, we published the paper on uh, schizophrenia, autistics, and normals, and brain mapping, and showing, in fact, that there are structures that are different in these different classes of, I mean, so-called normal, so-called schizophrenic, so-called, you know, these are me- medical classifications that were done on these individuals. Um, and then, so, you know, eventually providing that, well, we've provided the data sets as a groundwork or a framework for, let's say, somebody like Dean Radin, or a couple of other people who I know are into consciousness research and are also brain researchers um, and say, okay, well, let's look at people who have um, extraordinary meditative capabilities and can put their minds into altered states, right? Or people who claim to be, you know, in touch with the beyond or can see at a distance they claim right so okay well to the extent that any of those things are reproducible on on call let's put them under you know let's look at their brains first under regular MRI and let's do functional MRI which says when you're doing this what areas of the brain line up and start mapping the thing right because I mean especially with these the let's see the extreme groups where people would claim, Oh, well, you saw something you're hallucinating. Maybe you're a schizophrenic. First of all, that's rather damning. Um, but you know, maybe their brain structure doesn't look like at least what the average schizophrenic was that we published. I mean, it's an average, it's not like schizophrenic and here's the structure. It's kind of a signature and a probability. Um, so, you know, there, there are, there's an incredible amount of work that needs to be done. And the, again, the amount of money that it takes to accomplish that shouldn't make anybody think that just because I say it should be done that I can do it next week. I mean, even these brain studies that we did took two postdocs full time and a professor at Harvard, uh, you know, and me in a much more minor sense, I was just funding it. Um, to uh, t- two years to write those papers and then multiple meetings going over the data and then finding ways to cast it in the right light and, uh, you know, um, caveat the heck out of it. Um, and nothing about the woo was discussed in the papers, even though occasionally we would have discussions behind the scenes about how it relates to some of this other stuff. But... Um, Because if you want eventually people to accept that maybe there is something to anomalous information cognition, then again, we need a language to talk to mainstream scientists to interest them enough to do the studies. I mean, I can't do everything. So the idea is always to expand the circle by laying the groundwork and pitching the results or the data, results doesn't equal conclusion, pitching the results in a way that can maybe tease, plant a seed in other people's minds that, hmm, okay, well, let me use that. Right. So um, again, that was part of a conversation I had with a brain researcher in the last week or so um, to do exactly that. Uh, Because it got them interested. I said, okay, let's let's follow up on that. You know, one of the best people I think, I think mean, I didn't know if I mentioned it earlier, I mean Dean Raden, you know, you know, really he's is almost best positioned of anybody to move some of these studies forward because he has the kind of statistical rigor that he's brought to his work over the years that, you know, whether people agree with his conclusions or not, uh the numbers basically support things he's saying
0: yeah absolutely and i think it's um it's another one of those kind of areas that we'll just have to like you're establishing a, a sort of a framework for people to be able to look into some of these areas with the the work that you're doing and hopefully we'll see more, more information in those areas it's it's funny actually when you were talking about you mentioning about consciousness and some of these anomalous perception type of ideas the the materials thing we talked about earlier is kind of a um like a, a difficult one to reconcile with the concept of like a potential advanced non-human intelligence being sort of like outside of our human perception. You know, like the the concept of Huxley's Doors of Perception or Keel's super spectrum. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder what you think about those ideas are we witnessing like an intelligence outside of our perceptible reality and if so how do we end up with physical material inside our perceptible reality well
1: i mean let's tackle the last one first you know let's say there is something outside um but that to basically play in our sandbox it needs to have the kinds of material interface to interact with us Right. Or to move around, it needs to have a material, you know, reality in within which it, it operates. It's kind of like if you're going to go down to the bottom of the ocean, uh, you're not going to go down unprotected. You have to put yourself in a bathysphere, uh, you know, pressure controlled, etc., to go down there so you can talk to the fishes down there or, what, or at least observe them um and i mean that's not another reality but it's certainly a place where uh you have to do something different so i mean physicists haven't even agreed how many dimensions there are in the universe they haven't agreed what's going down at the base level of reality you know how many dimensions are required to explain the function of the quarks and all this other stuff so who's to say that there's not another sort of like a Uh, uh, another twist on reality where other things operate with the same basic rules of physics that we think we understand, but they're just enabled a slightly different way in another set of dimensions. And that's where an intelligence can operate or be. Um, You know, at the end of the day, every protein and the atom in your brain sits in the quantum mix of reality that we frankly don't understand. And information transfers from one set of atoms to another via simple things like movement and kinetics and and electrical impulses. And that's how some people think the brain operates. And yet you have people like Penrose and Hameroff who say, you know what, that's insufficient. Maybe consciousness is computed in the microtubules. And, you know, he was laughed at back in the early 90s when he said it. And people are becoming, coming around to like, hmm, maybe there's some aspect of what he was saying was right. So maybe there's other ways to compute. Let's say that he is right, right? And then let's say that consciousness is partially computed in the microtubules. And somehow then that is reflected through the neuronal paths and allows me to spew nonsense like I am right now. Um, And so uh, who's to say that that's the only arrangement by which consciousness can be generated? Maybe there's other ways to arrange particles in space time that could be self perpetuating, right? First of all, can divide and make more copies of itself. And then You know, um, Richard Dawkins quite elegantly, you know, years ago came up with the selfish gene hypothesis that explains how you don't need to explain evolution. All you need is self replicating ability and resources to enable that self replicability and then variability. And then once you have two things that are trying to replicate, and looking for limited resources, they will evolve. One will be better than the other because it was it's it's organized itself a little bit better, right? And then it's organizing and it, so you know just because cellular structures and biology on this planet are explained by material carbon hydrogen nitrogen etc. And that's how we think of how evolution, you know, occurred way back when through, you know, early primitive cellular structures. Who's to say that you couldn't do the same thing in the plasma of a sun? Right, where organizations of things that come together and then have a way to hold that structure and make more copies of themselves couldn't eventually create another kind of limited awareness or higher awareness. I mean, who's to say, I mean, the whole concept of Boltzmann brains that Eric Davis introduced me to years ago, um, is, uh, a similar kind of notion that, you know, at the beginning of the universe, there were so many particles compacted into such a small area that you, and this was a physicist from a hundred plus years ago, came up with this idea that who's to say that those things by themselves at that moment in time were not, just by randomness, the particles came together and were not aware. And maybe a few of those maintained the ability to stay aware and didn't dissipate. And if they were aware, maybe they wanted more copies of themselves. So they found ways to make more copy and then so on. So, you know, consciousness could have evolved at the time when the, or in, initiated at the time when the universe started at the big bang, um, could have, Balsam you know, Boltzmann brain's hypothesis I think people can go look at it on wiki, it's fascinating. I never heard of it before,
0: but. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fascinating to think about the, the various possible ways that, that intelligence and consciousness could exist. Out there in the universe, isn't it? And to sort mm-hmm. to, to sort of think that you know, if we're being visited by another intelligence, that it's going to be a similar kind of thing to us, you know, mm-hmm. is, is is probably not that realistic if you, if you think about it. And if if indeed it did evolve around about the time of the the Big Bang, it's had quite a long time to progress, hasn't it? So it's going right. to be pretty advanced by this point. I mean, it, and it, it it doesn't need to ha- be a human like consciousness. I mean.
1: Self-awareness at the level of an animal or even uh, an amoeba um, and the, the desire to survive um, or seek out new resources doesn't need to be pre-programmed into consciousness. It's something that can come to be. You know, I'm always reminded, uh, it was one of those fascinating um, short science fiction stories. I think it was published in Analog back in the early seventies, I can, I can't remember the author. Um, but the, the story, the story started was with, it could not remember, but could deduce its origins. Right. And it's basically about this thing that, that coagulated from a bunch of jellyfish in an ocean and became an intelligence. And, you know, I won't, you know, go into the whole story. But I always loved that first line. Could not remember, but could deduce its origin. That's like us. We can't remember, but we can deduce our origins. So are there other origin stories out there for other things that we've yet to appreciate? You know, we think that because it's our origin, ours is the only way. Uh, But maybe there's multiple ways to compute awareness without the biological necessities that we think are are
0: necessary or or are key yeah that's really fascinating to think about um something i've heard you mention in in the past um you know about some of these these types of things and it's got me thinking about things like uh, cattle mutilation do you think that that could be related in some way to the kind of concept of a biological avatar that you've mentioned in the past. You sort of said that, like, you know, if you wanted to communicate with ants, the first thing you would mm-hmm. have to do is create something that looks like an ant. That's kind of a quote of yours that I've talked yeah. about quite a bit. And perhaps whatever is interacting with us exists outside of our perceptual reality or whatever is a type of consciousness that we can't, you know, imagine, um, mm-hmm. or maybe we can, but perhaps it's, it's, you know, using some biological material from our reality to create an avatar. And it, that could be a possible explanation for things like cattle mutilation. It, it could be. I mean, I just, you know, I, I I think
1: one of the problems with the cattle mutilation stories is, as is the problem, unfortunately, with a lot of the these various areas is that they've been polluted by hoaxsters. Um, and uh, I mean, Linda Moulton, how did, you know, heroic work back in the, I guess, 70s or 80s on on this subject matter? And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how to explain it. You know, and there's, um, you know, I know that Cattle mutilations don't just happen in the United States, and that there have been examples of it going back well before any of this stuff. Um, I don't know how to explain it. Could it be what you just said? Could be. Um, Could it be. I just don't know. I mean, it's such a fraught area. Um, I can't be either an expert or uh, an opinion maker on every one of these areas. I, I, you know, I wanna really stay in my box and my box is the materials analysis that I can do and the caudate uh, brain area. I mean, I can actually prove or disprove those things, you know, or provide data. Uh, There's lots of other people who've done way more work than me and so I'm I'm just even afraid to touch it because I'll just be I'll be inundated by email saying, didn't you know about this? Or why didn't you know about that?
0: Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I understand that. You don't want to be chasing yourself around the internet for the f- next couple exactly. of years. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I mean, just going back to the, the different types of intelligence and, and consciousness that are out there. Do you have any thoughts on like what the chances are that if we do encounter another advanced intelligence, that it would actually even consist of individual biological selves? Is it more likely, perhaps, that we encounter some kind of a hive mind or like a super interconnected society or like an AI type thing?
1: I mean, I think it's everything's on the table. I mean, just look at uh, where AI is going—you know, this last few months you know, I mean, I I think some of the AI that I've read conversations with, and we know that I don't think it's sentient in the same way that we think it is. uh, It's a better dinner table, you know, conversation than a lot I've had over the years. (laughs) Um, You know, it would be a really interesting person to have, you know, person, uh, you know, speaker to have on the, you know, on the table sitting next to you. Um, So it's, it's, it's not impossible to believe that, just a, you know, even a decade from now, um, the, the stuff that, is, uh, that we're doing won't far outpace us. And, you know, why don't we use that to, you know, be our representatives elsewhere? I mean, so, you know, um, I'm on the scientific advisory board of a company that Avi Loeb created, right? The, the Copernicus Space uh, Corporation. And it's got um, a very noted biologist from Harvard, genomicist and very broad thinker, George Church, and several astrophysicists and physicists from Harvard, um, as well as Stephen Wolfram of Mathematica. And the objective there, I mean, one of the longer-term objectives is to basically enable microprobes or nanoprobes, or, you know, even, you know, small, like satellite objects that are imbued with sufficient AI, that they can populate the universe for us. You know, even if we never invent warp speed, you know, we can send our seed out across the universe. I mean, George Church is one of the world's expert so-called synthetic biologists, um, and uh, he just published a paper. Interestingly, I just I just read it uh, on you know what would it take to send basically bacteria-sized objects to another star? How much energy would it take? You know, and and would they once there be able to signal back to us that they got there? Not by thinking it, but by like light pulses and things. I was actually shocked at the depth he went into in the math and energy requirements. I only ever thought of him as a genomicist, but I kept looking in the paper acknowledgments said, okay, what, George is the only author on this. Did he come up with all those equations himself? He's even smarter than I thought. Um, I mean, he's using standard equations, but I mean, it was, you know, it's an interesting thought piece. Uh, and basically what, you know, I, I don't speak, for the Copernicus Space Corporation, I'm just an advisor uh, on one of their boards. Um, you know, it's, it's what people have sort of been excited about doing. The notion that we can send copies of ourselves out even if we ourselves can't go there. And it's within reach. You know, my short, I mean, I'm not gonna be around obviously for, for the long term, but my short term interests is okay if we think that there's something else maybe that's been here and there's like ancient uh evidence of somebody else who passed through the solar system well sending one rocket ship to mars or one ship to you know for three billion dollars to europa or titan um is possibly going to miss something so why not send out 10,000 disposable micro or MIDI probes uh, that somehow have a way of transmitting the information back. You know, so you can basically cast a a much wider net at actually one-tenth the cost of one of these individual missions. So to me, that is... um So here's an example. So the department... Uh, that I was, I got my PhD in, Department of Genetics, was headed by Josh Lederberg, Nobel Prize winner for uh, bacterial genetics um, at Stanford. And this was, that was back in the, in the 60s and 70s when he was the chair. So the Viking experiment, uh, the Viking experiments that were done where they basically uh, put uh, chemical labels in a liquid broth uh, on the Viking uh rover uh shot two of them or at least one of them to mars um and then they scooped up some dirt put it in the in the broth and lo and behold it produced apparent uh growth as measured by the um indirectly through looking at the uh at the uh label release So I won't get into the reality or not of whether that actually proved life was there or not. But that experiment was actually designed and built uh, in the department where I got my PhD. I wasn't there at the time, it was almost a decade or more before. Um, But when that experiment was through, the engineers and the equipment were there and a guy by the name of Leonard Herzenberg, the guy with whom I did my PhD, took those engineers and the space age knowledge that they had of how to basically micro create micro devices that and turned it into something called a fluorescence activated cell sorter. Uh, The fluorescence activated cell sorter is a mainstay of immunology today, something that enables you to look at cells, analyze them and separate them and made bazillions of dollars for Stanford then enabled Len and one of his postdocs, and his other guy, Lubert Stryer, to create the humanized antibodies that are used in all immunotherapies today, like the antibodies used for rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. Multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, And the money that went into all of this, right, that made the Department of Genetics a very wealthy department at the time when I came in, um, Stan Cohen, who took over the department uh, as the chairman, and whose lab I briefly rotated, and I actually went to Stanford to work in his lab, but I decided to go into Lens Lab. It sort of enabled Stan to create the what are called the Cohen-Boyer patents that started and kickstarted the entire biotechnology industry. So why did this all happen? Because of the Viking experiments. So there is an example of how a, a simple Basically, search for life on Mars. Sort of the the unexpected byproduct led to the entire biotechnology industry and bazillions of dollars of of immunology research, right? And I'm here because of that, right? Because I went to Lens Lab and I thought he had cool equipment and computers and stuff, which even in the '80s, you know, today they're primitive by comparison. Um, and so, you know, this is where I think, again, the, the search for life, the search for consciousness, the will have these unexpectedly huge benefits, you can't predict what will happen, nobody could have predicted that when they did that, that would lead to Len Herzenberg, creating the fluorescence activated cell source right? And then all the secondary things that came from that. And then the Cohen-Boyer patents on recombinant DNA. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I think that that's what excites me about these things is not what I think I will find, but what I know I won't find, but will be, or I won't find directly, but I know will come of these kinds of studies and this kind of inquiry. And so that's why when people say, don't study it, I say, look at what you're forestalling. Look at what you're, the kinds of, I mean, how many times do we have to show that basic science can lead to extraordinary translational opportunities before people say, well, let's just do it. You know, this kind of quid pro quo that people are always asking for is, you know, I mean, to say it's short-sighted is to state the obvious. Um, and so that's one of the other reasons why when people say, oh, don't bother with studying UAPs or is there extraterrestrial intelligence, it's like, well, look at what it's what the question already did for you. The reason you're here in this lecture room talking about the biology that we're talking about is because of that. You know, and I took some of Len's inventions and made sort of next generation versions of them but it all stands on his shoulders. He he and Lee Herzenberg, they were a husband and wife team, uh, both professors, both my mentors at the time. So it's sort of, that's the, if anything, the learning that I like to tell people about. uh, And that, you know, this is why not asking the question is so dangerous to our future because we're forestalling an understanding that might come that will, you know, either better put us in context or better enable us to survive some coming challenge.
0: Yeah. Very well put. Quite profound, actually. I mean, on that, on that note, I think that's basically all about there. We've got time for, so I just want to say, um, you know, a huge thank you for joining me. A few days before Christmas, as we record this, mm-hmm. so uh, just before we go, what does Christmas look like in in the Nolan household? I have this image of of yeah. you feeling festive, having an atomically layered Christmas pudding being <laughs> delivered by <laughs> Hal, Hal put off.
1: <laughs> no, I mean Merry Christmas. You know, I'm I'm you know Merry Christmas, happy post pagan holidays, happy Hanukkah, uh, happy tree hugging, happy anybody whatever they want. I'm, uh, you know, we'll, we'll drink eggnog and and do all the Christmasy stuff, sing Christmas songs as appropriate. Uh, so, um, and, uh, you know, a happy new year for everybody and, uh, and just be glad I think how far we've come in just the last few years. And so let's hope for the same kind of, uh, accelerated understanding and appreciation, you know, in the coming year.
0: UFO Podcasts.